Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Okay, um, the making of a medicinal chemist, my title slide. This is not actually my picture. I pinched it from one of my collaborators. But we're going to see it later on and see what it means. It's actually the structure of an enzyme that we've been interested in recently. So where do we start? Partly autobiography, partly talking about research, and partly acknowledging some of the inspirations that have taken me in the path that I have and given me the interests that I have today. So where do we start? At the beginning. I was born <laughs> in Little Paxton. Now, who here knows where Little Paxton is without looking at the map? <laughs> and of course, my first inspirations were my parents, Jack and Joyce. This is not a recent photograph. Um, Little Paxton is 15 miles west from Cambridge. And little known fact about Little Paxton, it's a lot bigger than Great Paxton. <laughs> So moving on, I went to Colville Primary School in Cambridge. This was not the finest primary school in Cambridge, um, but there, one of my teachers in the fourth year, the final year of primary school, um, was Mary Waters. And she taught me to aim high. I want to acknowledge her because she taught me to aim high. And she taught me that learning happens through understanding rather than learning by rote. Two th important things she taught me. I haven't got a photograph of her, but I have got a photograph of her son. <laughs> so moving on from there, I went to secondary school at the Perth School, Cambridge, which developed... <laughs> two minutes, that's two minutes. Two minutes late, okay, we'll let, we'll, we'll let him stay. At this point in one of my teaching lectures, I'd normally have a class vote <laughs> as to as whether we should admit, admit this latecomer or not. So from there, I went to the Perth School, secondary school in Cambridge, School Crest. That's the current School Crest. I didn't like that at all when I was there. But this, also, this Perth School also taught me a lot of independence. It taught me also to understand, not to learn by rote. From there, I went to my first job. I spent a year, nearly a year, at Sibagagi Plastics and Additives Limited, which is near Cambridge. They're the people who make araldite. So I was doing some laboratory work, trying to make better araldite. We never did. <laughs> but we did make a super, really good potty putty. You know, this putty that you can, uh, children's toy, you can bounce. It, was, it bounced as well as a super ball, but it was still malleable. Went to Cambridge, did a BA in Natural Sciences. We won't discuss what my final classification was, <laughs> except there was an archbishop in uh, South Africa with the same name. <laughs> did a PGC at the University of Durham. I was interested in teaching at that stage, explored teaching at Durham. The teaching practice, unfortunately, was not, didn't encourage me towards a career in teaching secondary school kids. So I moved to Roche Products Limited, Hoffman La Roche in Welling Garden City, where I joined their research team in medicinal chemistry. And here comes the next inspiration, Peter Machin. Of course, he didn't look like that then. Peter was the first 
Oh, sorry, the newest group leader there, the newest <coughs> PhD level group leader. He was in his mid-late mid 20s then. I was pretty much the same age. And he inspired me. He really inspired me to develop. Particularly over those two years, he developed me as a medicinal chemist. He got me interested in medicinal chemistry rather than just chemistry for chemistry's sake. Chemistry for an application. The other th way in which he inspired me is he persuaded me to leave Roche. <laughs> he said, if you, and I agree with him, with hindsight, if you're going to get anywhere, you have to do a PhD. There was a very firm, toughened glass ceiling for those without PhDs in that company at the time. So I left Roche, at his suggestion, and joined the laboratory of uh, Professor Sir Alan Battersby. Alan Battersby, we knew as Prof. That was, his, that was his name. We didn't know he had another name. <laughs> we called him Prof. And in end of March last year, I went to his 90th birthday celebration. This is him in the symposium and the dinner in honour of Prof. I'm up there somewhere. This is a fo photo taken when the postgrads and postdocs put on a charity play when I was a PhD student. So here's Prof th threatening someone with a... Actually, it's a, it's a small gas cylinder. <laughs> I, don't, I can't remember what the, what the plot was at that stage. But this is quite a useful photograph. That's Brian Johnson, who was head of inorganic chemistry. And that is Professor Sir John Moirig Thomas, who went to the Royal Institution. So this, this photograph contains the great and the good in, the, in Cambridge chemistry at the time. But we didn't always dress like that for the lab. As Jennifer Aniston once said in a L'Oreal advertisement, here's the science bit. <laughs> this is the first science bit that I want to talk about. This is the cover page from my PhD thesis. And I worked on cytochrome oxidase. As the dean mentioned, uh, synthetic studies related to, as in we didn't actually get anywhere near the target, <coughs> Just as an outline, though, here's the structure of cytochrome oxidase. This was published much later. Cytochrome oxidase is an, is an enzyme, a protein, which binds molecular oxygen. It's part of the respiratory electron transport chain. It's, part, it's the structure which binds molecular oxygen. And to do that, it has two of these heme molecules. Here's the chemical structure up here, holding an iron atom. <coughs> actually oxidation level two. Seven minutes. Seven minutes. <laughs> Ian, we have a ten minute rule in my lectures. So here we have a sort of space-filling model, uh, an impression of the shape of the molecule. Each of these blobs corresponds to an atom. Um, chemists here will know the colour code, but oxygen is red. Hydrogen is white, carbon is grey, nitrogen is blue, and this rusty coloured thing in the middle is iron, not surprisingly. <laughs> and we ha there are two of these in cytochrome oxidase, and they bind a molecule of oxygen. And the project was, well, the overall research programme, was to build 
a small chemical model of this system. So two of these hemes, or molecules like these hemes, held at the right distance apart to hold an oxygen atom, to study the process. And my contribution was to make this molecule with two of these porphyrins. This is a scan out of my thesis. You notice the typeface here suggests that it was in the days of typewriters. Yes, there are still a few people here who remember typewriters. <laughs> this is the yield on the last step. Chemists, note nine migs. And I cried when I took this nine migs, dissolved it up, and put it in the, in the infrared spectrometer, and the solution cell cracked. And that evening, I spent all evening and much of the night dismantling the spectrometer and extracting my compound back. <laughs> but managed to synthesize it in pretty poor yield, but it was there, we have the evidence. For NMR spectroscopists, here's the signal for the NH protons in the middle at min delta minus seven, at delta minus seven, showing that the two porphyrins are actually held face to face to, with each other to push the signal for this so far, these signals so far upfield. That was the evidence. 90 megahertz, that was state of the art then. We had, I had to go up to AstraZeneca, ICI as it was, to use this 90 megahertz rather than the 80 megahertz ma machine we had in Cambridge. Okay, so I made that, made that compound. That was my crowning achievement in my PhD. Gained my PhD for it. Here is a model of the structure, drawn out a bit better here with modern chemical drawing packages, ChemDraw. And I've put this down here just to show you an idea of the bulk of the molecule. It's two porphyrins, two heme-like structures held face to face, like that. Big molecule, nine migs of it, yield in the last step 13%. There were even lower yields earlier in the sequence. So I started with a kilo or so of starting material to end up with nine migs. <laughs> I was very proud of that. But that's where I got to my PhD. That's the first science bit. Having completed my PhD, I moved to Aston University. Why did I move to Aston University? It was a postdoctoral position, by definition temporary. In one week, I had three job offers. A permanent position at Amersham, a permanent position with BP, or a temporary position at Aston. I went with my gut feeling at that point. Because when I came for interview, I met some, I hope they won't be offended, crazy people. Crazy, exciting, lively people. Two of them are sitting in the front here. One of them is Malcolm Stevens, the head of the group. Um, and this is a quote from his inaugural lecture in 1980. In interesting chemistry begets interesting biology. And I've never forgotten that one. Biology is fun. We are, as medicinal chemists, <coughs> aiming to have a biological effect, a therapeutic effect. But there's some pretty fun chemistry to be done on the way. So thank you, Malcolm, for inspiring me. Thank you for recruiting me into your group. And thank you for getting me interested in cancer. The other person I want to mention is Andy Gesher, 
who's sitting on the front row next to Malcolm here. Um, this is a fairly recent photograph, Andy, which I pinched off your website. And this is an earlier photograph. This is Andy, not this one. <laughs> um, that must have been taken 22 years ago, something like that, 22, 23 years ago. And Andy, I want to thank also for being, being a crazy, being one of that team who were so positive, so go ahead. So let's get on with, so let's get on with it was our general approach. Let's get on with it. Let's, let's treat cancer. We, we thought we could treat cancer. We thought cancer, we'd be redundant in five years. We, we thought we would have treated cancer by then. Not quite. So what I want to do is explore with you just the highlights of one other project, the, one of the projects that we looked at, at As in Aston. When I joined the group, it had been discovered that this molecule up here, called NMF, in methylformamide, had activity to treat some tumours in mice, in experimental mice. And just for comparison, here's the molecule from the previous slide, and here on the same scale is the molecule that I started to work with. Yeah, bit of a change of scale. And this is a copy up here, a scan of the first page of my very first paper in 1982. So what did we do with N-methylformide? We had these results. By the time I arrived in the group, we already had these results in experimental mice that it worked. But what we also knew was that the compound itself didn't have much effect on cancer cells. So what was going on? Well, we did what medicinal chemists do. We looked at the structure activity relationship. That is, we change each one of the groups around a molecule, normally with a much bigger molecule. We change it. All the groups around the molecule keep changing, 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 see what makes the activity better, see what makes the activity worse. Then we get some sort of idea about how it's binding, how it's working. Well, it's a pretty small molecule, so there's not actually a lot to change. You think a methyl group, hydrogen, hydrogen, oxygen, around the periphery of the molecule. There's not a lot we can change. We actually did make 45 compounds, which we pretended were related to the original structure. But this structure activity relationship shows that we didn't actually get very far in terms of, in terms of developing new compounds. The best compound was the one we started with. We could change, we could, so we could have CH3 here, carbon three hydrogens, methyl group. We could replace those hydrogens with deuteriums. That's an isotope of hydrogen, heavy isotope of hydrogen. Or we could have an ethyl group, but that was a bit less active. Down here in this pink position, we could have the original hydrogen, or we could have a methyl group. Interesting, that methyl group makes it the common solvent, common industrial solvent, DMF, dimethylformamide. In the systems, that did have some anti-cancer activity. In mice. In mice. And it had to be a hydrogen at this position, had to be an oxygen at that position. So to the medicinal chemists in this room, this is a horrible structure activity relationship. It's essentially one compound. You can't change much. So how does it work? It doesn't kill cancer cells directly, but we started to have a look at it. We started to look, have a look about how it was going to be metabolized. So if we go back a slide, if we go back a slide, there we go. 
Um, we've got very little in here that can be metabolized. It's a small molecule. Not much can happen to it. So particularly notice it's got an N-methyl group. And Andy Gesher was leading a research team at that stage looking at what happens to N-methyl containing drugs in animals, in humans, how they get metabolized, how the liver changes them into other compounds. And one of the compounds that was worked on was dacarbazine. This is an um, anti-cancer <coughs> drug. It was used for the treatment of melanoma at the time, not very successfully. Uh, but it, to be active, it had to be metabolized. One of these methyl groups, these CH3 groups, had to be removed. That happened in two steps. One with an OH group, an alcohol group attached onto it, so it was oxidized. And then the whole of this unit just fell off to give the actual active metabolite uh, MTIC. This is very close, th this active metabolite is very closely related to what goes on with temozolomide, temodal. Um, blockbuster, blockbuster drug, Malcolm? Multi-blockbuster Multi drug, invented at Aston University by Malcolm Stevens here. Um, now used worldwide for treatment of cancer. But this is the active metabolite. So we wanted to study this a bit more. Was oxidation at this methyl group, the corresponding methyl group in any methyl formamide, responsible for the activity? So Andy and I, with, with, with some other colleagues, we're looking at the metabolism of a, a different N-methyl-containing compound. Here's an amide, similar sort of structure. Here we've got benzene ring instead of the hydrogen. And it was duly oxidized by, by preparations from liver, by enzymes, liver enzymes. It was duly turned into the OH compound. What about this OH compound? Was that going to be reactive? Was it something we could possibly think would be the active metabolite of the formamide, of the N-methylformamide? And yes, we showed that it was electrophilic. Um, did some work with some undergraduate project students, Sally Addison, Bernie Cunningham, um, Prakash Shah, who showed that these hydroxymethyl compounds could be electrophilic. So that maybe it's that electrophilic reactivity of the hydroxymethylformamide that is killing the cancer cells. We also showed, as a group, that these OH compounds, if they lasted long enough, could be oxidized further up to an N-formyl compound. So we've got a carbonyl group here, which could also be electrophilic. Those are quite reactive as well. And we, so we synthesized some of those, again, with a, an undergraduate project student here, Carol, Carol McCall. So maybe one of those two electrophiles, the N-formyl or the hydroxymethyl, could be the active metabolite. But we synthesized the corresponding compounds, synthesized this one, inactive, synthesized this one, inactive. Am I allowed to say who synthesized this one? I think so. Andy Gesher synthesized this one. And it was not quite pure. And it gained the nickname Gesher's Gunge. 
So, what did we do? We did some thinking. It's always wise for a medicinal chemist to think rather than just blunder ahead and make lots of compounds. And then we did some serious chemistry around this area. Some of you will remember this mocked-up photo and the, and the dreadful styles of hair we had in those days. So moving slightly aside from there, what we looked at was notice that these compounds are also hepatotoxic, toxic to the liver, these formamides. And we noticed also that for them to be hepatotoxic, toxic to the liver, in other words, some sort of biological reactivity, it had to have a hydrogen here. So maybe our model studies with their benzene ring there weren't telling us everything. It also, because we notice here we've got a methyl group, it's not hepatotoxic. And this meant they're metabolized through to the amines. So maybe these amines are responsible for the activity. Maybe this bond, this amide bond, is being cleaved. So if we look at the next slide, we studied that. Uh, three papers published in the area. And now I'm going to introduce probably quite a challenging concept. Two isotopes of hydrogen. There are two naturally occurring isotopes of hydrogen, neither of which are radioactive. There's one called protium, which we call H, one called deuterium, which we call D. And C, their CD bonds are a bit stronger than CH, therefore they're broken more slowly. By any process, they're broken more slowly because they're stronger, need more energy to break them. So we made these two compounds where we put either deuterium <coughs> here or deuterium here and asked what, ha what happens. Metabolically, they convert into these two compounds. In other words, this bond is being broken. It's either carbon to protium or carbon to deuterium bond. And there's a KDIE, kinetic deuterium isotope effect. This one is formed seven times faster than this one. In other words, this bond is broken seven times faster than this one. This is quite interesting. <coughs> Same applies here. Well, this bond has to be broken anyway. But more than that, when we looked at the amines, they were also subject to KDIE of about five, five or six, which means that this amine is produced from this compound five times faster than this one. So the rate of production of the amine depends on what's here, not on hydrolyzing this bond. So this amine must have come from the same type of metabolism. So we now deduced, we, Andy and I deduced, that the activity, the hepatotoxic activity, must be something to do with making these metabolites generating an electrophile at this carbon by oxidation. That all looks really good. Enable us to write a couple of chapters in a handbook of toxicity of common solvents. And actually, with a collaborator in the Czech Republic, to explain some unusual toxic effects which we've seen in workers in a factory which used DMF as a solvent. But did it contribute to our understanding of the and development of anti-cancer agents in this area? Not a bit. Well, perhaps a little bit. It may have been 
associated, but the project, whole project kind of fizzled out at that point when the first clinical trial results came back and it didn't actually work in humans. Could treat mice very well with it. <coughs> it didn't work in humans. Let's press on. At that point, I left Aston University and joined the MRC Radio Barrel. How many times, Amit, have we, have we spell-checked these slides? <laughs> the, the radiobology unit in Oxfordshire um, stayed there a short time. And most of my work in it then was in the area of hypoxia. Hypoxia, oxygen deficiency in tissues. Hypoxia has been understand for, understood for about 250 years to have a negative or have an effect on biological tissue. And here's a painting from Joseph Wright where he illustrates a, an effect of hypoxia, oxygen deficiency, oxygen deprivation on living tissue. Here's a bird, here's a glass bell jar, and there's a pump down here in which the researcher has sucked the air out and the bird died. This painting's in the National Gallery. Um, that's a biological effect. Not a particularly beneficial one, but it's a biological effect. So hypoxia, oxygen deficiency, does have an effect on tissue. We also see here an early expression of concern for the welfare of experimental animals. So we've been, con we've been concerned about welfare of experimental animals for over 250 years. <coughs> Let's get scientific again. Tumors need a supply of oxygen and other nutrients to grow. That makes sense, they're tissue. They need oxygen. And oxygen's probably the, the limiting factor in the growth of many tumors. But they don't have very good blood vessels. The blood vessels they have, they have a lot of blood vessels, but they're disorganized. The well, cell wa vessel walls are not well formed, they leak, they're leaky, they're very poor drainage out of tumors. So tumors are really not very well structured tissue. And the, and the oxygen supply is limited. And we can draw a diagram like this of a caricature. And this is in a tumor only one millimeter in size. We can identify three zones in a tumor, in a solid tumor. Here's a, I say, functional blood vessel. Most of them are non-functional. We can define an area which is what we call oxic. That's the pink region. It's well oxygenated because the cells have got lots of oxygen. They're growing fast. This is the area which makes the tumor grow. And these, these cells are actually fairly sensitive to radiotherapy and to chemotherapy. It's relatively straightforward to kill some of the cells in a tumor. That can be done. In the middle, the gray bit, we call the necrotic region. It consists of dead cells. There isn't enough oxygen for the cells to be alive. So it's dead cells and bits of dead cells. Not a problem, they're dead. But in between, there's a hypoxic region, which has low oxygen concentration, but not enough to kill the cells. These cells are not proliferating, but they're difficult to kill by radiotherapy and chemotherapy. Radiotherapy, because the actual killing of cells by radiation requires oxygen. It requires oxygen. 
chemotherapy because chemotherapy doesn't select cancer cells because they're cancer cells. It collects most chemotherapeutic methods, select cancer cells because they're growing. But these aren't. So, what did we do about it? We made, just before I got there, they'd made this molecule here, with a bit that, part of the molecule here, nitromidazole, that mimics the action, works like oxygen, sensitizes, resensitizes the cells, the hypoxic cells, to killing by radiation, radiotherapy. And, whoops, there's a bit here, which anchors the mimic onto DNA, anchors the mimic onto DNA. Because DNA is the site of action. DNA is the site of action of these drugs, site of action of radiotherapy. And this was actually really quite a good radiosensitizer. And we noticed that it actually concentrated in hypoxic tumor cells. It was not well tolerated in clinical trial, so we made a prodrug of it, which is a lot more soluble, a lot, lot easier to deliver. And we looked around this prodrug doing structure activity relationships. I'll go fairly quickly through this part. To the medicinal chemists here, we looked at both enantiomers, two different versions with the OH group forward or the OH group back. And despite what we tell most of the student, undergrad students, there was no difference in activity. <laughs> and we constrained the conformation. We put substituents all around everywhere, and we changed the heterocycle and got nothing better. So another one where we start out, the first compound was the best, and we got worse by tinkering with it. I only had a short stay at radiobiology unit, less than two and a half years. Then I came to Bath. I was encouraged to come to Bath, and at Bath I met these two in inspiring people, David Davies, who was head of school at the time. David inspired me by saying, on the very first day I started, if you do well, I won't get in your way. <laughs> I thought that was very inspiring, as in, here are the facilities, get on with it. The other person I want to mention is Bill Wish. Bill Wish who was in the Department of Biology and Biochemistry, inspired me greatly. We collaborated a lot. He inspired me by being an honest, good, honest scientist, getting in the lab, doing things. And he was driven by science. He was also driven by developing his PhD students, encouraging them to do the work, them to take the credit for the work that they'd done. Two inspiring people, two very different people, the two very inspiring people. <clears throat> in this photograph, I have cropped out the, the rest of it here, which shows him in a bar with plenty of other people drinking. That's Bill. Very convivial. OK. Back to the science. At that stage, I was still interested in these nitromidazoles. Because I, uh, if you remember, I told you that nitromidazole compounds concentrate in hypoxic tissue, in tumors. Nitrimidazole is concentrating tumours. And for one project, we wanted to deliver clusters of boron atoms to tumours. So, after, with a lot of work, I'm summarising 
seven or eight man years of work here in one slide. After a lot of work, we made compounds like this and demonstrated that these compounds were retained in tumours. And here's the evidence. Here's the evidence in the tumour. We're doing 11 boron NMR here in experimental mice. And we're detecting the boron in the tumour and in a normal tissue, the brain. And we can see that boron gets into the tumour and into the brain at early time points. At later time points, the boron stays in the tumour but disappears from the brain. And we did quite a lot of work around this area to develop compounds of this type to deliver boron. So targeting it to tumours with the nitroimidazole group and also targeting with porphyrins, going back to these big ring systems you see in the middle here, carrying a couple of boron cages. So we've got a porphyrin, the heme-like structure in the middle, two boron cages. Um, that project went along quite well until funding authorities decided they didn't like this type of therapy with boron. So we shelved that for a while. But we didn't lose our interest in the structure of tumours. Here we've got our tumour, our kind of cartoon tumour. Poor vascular structure. I said that the, the blood vessels in tumours are leaky. I also said that they, that they don't drain well. Well, that actually means is that if we design a drug which is a polymer, a big molecule, it'll leak out of the leaky blood vessels and get stuck in the tumour because the drainage isn't very good. So together, collaborating with Colin Powton, who was at Bath and in our department at the time, we started to attach drugs to polymers, to big molecules. We attached small molecule drugs, ordinary chemotherapeutic drugs, to polymers. This was some work by some, um, let's, let's say, say, put it this way, Col uh, collaborators? No, competitors. Competitors at this point. Where they got this polyacrylate polymer here, because polyacrylate polymers are not very soluble, they had to attach all sorts of solubilizing groups onto it, which actually reduced the amount of drug they could carry. The drug they were looking at was doxorubicin. They linked it on through a peptide, a kind of short protein thing, which would be cut off by an enzyme in the tumour. So they could get this whole polymer with its drug load into the tumour, and then the enzymes in the tumour would release the drug. It, it kind of worked. But we modified it. We thought we could do better. And the way we thought we could do better was to redesign the polymer. We didn't want polyacrylate because that's quite difficult to work with. We used polyethylene glycol, PEG. So PEG, PEG, is soluble in water. Why use an insoluble polymer and then put solubilizing groups on if you use a soluble polymer in the first place? So we made some structures of this type. And then we can also attach the drug to the peptide bit. We put some peptide bits in the chain. The reason we put the peptide bits in the chain was both to carry the drug and so it's biodegradable. The problem with the polyHPMA polymer is once you've administered it to a patient, it goes round and round and round and round for a very long time, months. So we made biodegradable polymers of this type. 
alternating peptide and PEG units, carrying the doxorubicin drug, and also carrying some imaging agents. <coughs> Most recently, though, we've modified this approach, asking a question, why have we got so many drug molecules just stuck out the side, which makes the chemistry difficult, makes assembling this thing difficult. Let's modify this a bit. Here are the earlier papers that we published in the 1990s. So we've modified this a bit. We thought, well, why put the drug on the side? Why not put the drug on the ends of the polymer? Then we don't have to go for all this fancy stuff building up a fancy polymer. We also thought, well, if we put the drug on the end, then we haven't got enough drug to deliver to the tumour. Because to kill the tumour, you actually need quite a lot of doxorubicin. You need quite a lot of doxorubicin, which is why the original workers, uh, Ruth Duncan and colleagues, put lots of doxorubicin molecules on the side of their polymer. We thought that if we improve the potency of the drug, then we don't have to attach it to the side. We can attach it to the end. We just have two molecules. And that's what we're working on at the moment. Mike Kenny up there, one of the ushers, the usher in the lighter suit, um, is working in this area. So this is what we're doing. We're attaching the, some super potent drugs called C, CBIs um, onto the ends of the polymer. Because, because the CBIs are so potent, no. in an undergraduate lecture, I would stare <laughs> out the person whose mobile went off and invite everyone else to listen into the conversation. <laughs> OK. These CBIs are really amazingly potent. They bind into the minor groove of DNA. Here, the red, and the red and the green are the backbone of DNA, the helical backbone of DNA. And they fit beautifully into the grooves in the DNA structure. And that's why they are so, so potent. And I was fortunate to collaborate with Andy Thompson on this project, because he did his PhD and quite a lot of subsequent work on these really, really vicious toxins. You've worked in this area as well, haven't you, Richard? You worked in groove-binding toxins? Yeah, yeah. So we have a polymer, and we put the drug on the end through a peptide, which is cleaved. Now we're looking to, to deliver selectively, selectively to prostate tumors by an enzyme, whoops, by an enzyme which is active only in the prostate. That's PSA. If any of you have had a PSA test, I'm looking at only the gentleman here. <laughs> um, this is a protein which goes around in the blood. Its level goes up. If you have prostate cancer, usually. But it's actually an enzyme. But it's, as an enzyme, it only is active in the prostate. So we're trying to get a super potent drug released from the polymer by the action of this enzyme in the prostate. That's what we're working on at the moment. Well, that's what Mike's working on at the moment um, to develop this kind of structure. <coughs> now I want to move on to the last science topic of the talk, inhibitors of the polyADP ribose polymerase. This is a bunch of enzymes with a long name and a short acronym, slightly vulgar acronym, PARP. This is the group of enzymes that Bill Wish got me interested in. He developed one of the very first selective inhibitors of this 
of this series of enzymes, long before I came to Bath. And it uses NAD as a substrate. Here's the chemical structure of NAD, and here's a structure looks a bit like, like one of those sort of balloon poodles that you make up for children at Christmas. This is the substrate of all the PARPs, but there are lots of enzymes, 100 and something enzymes in the cell which use NAD as a substrate. And they fall into two groups. So the oxidoreductases and the ADP ribosyl transferases. So these get involved in oxidation reduction reactions. These transfer ADP ribose unit, which is this bit, onto a receptor protein, a protein which, they want, which this enzyme wants to modify. And there are four main groups here of the ADP ribosyl transferases. So lots and lots of different enzymes which use this same substrate. So getting any sort of selectivity at first sight looks quite difficult. So we have the mono-ADP ribosyl transferases, the ADP ribosyl cyclases, which Barry Potter's done a lot of work on quite successfully, the sirtuins, which we've done a little bit of work on, and the poly-ADP ribose transferases over this side. Um, there are lots of isoforms, there are 17 isoforms known at the moment, and we've worked on five of them now. Trying to inhibit them, trying to fight both therapeutically and to, as tool, to get inhi selective inhibitors as tools to find out what these do in the cell. So this is what PARPs do. We've done most of this work understanding what the enzyme actually does and then trying to inhibit it. So here's the structure of NAD again. I've cartooned this bit. And what it does is it grabs the nicotinamide and pulls it off the structure. Grabs this bit here, this ring, and this bit, pulls it off the, off the rest of the structure. And for those who like curly arrows, that bond breaks to make this electrophile. And then a nucleophile comes in from the alpha face, bottom face, and joins it on, joins this R group onto this ADP ribose. And what this does is put a tag onto a protein. This R group is a protein which is being modified, which is being regulated, whose activity is being regulated by this ADP ribose unit. And it's being regulated not by just putting one ADP ribose unit, by putting lots of ADP ribose units on, poly ADP ribosylation. So there's one ADP ribose unit, and then it puts another one on, and another one, and another one, and another one. And it puts several hundred of these on as a tag, a marker, and also an extra bit of molecule which modifies the action of the protein, modifies the action of the target protein. So this is what all the poly-ADP ribose polymerases do. The ones we've been interested in are, are, are this lot, PARP1, isoform 1, which is the first one to be found. It's got some roles in repair of damaged DNA and in regulation of expression of genes. These, these two quite important roles, slightly separate roles. If DNA is damaged by radiotherapy or chemotherapy, then we, in a tumor cell, then we want to stop the tumor cell repairing that damage so that the cell actually, tumor cell actually dies. So PARP1 inhibitors are used to encourage tumor cells to die once their DNA has been damaged. PARP2 has got a similar sort of role. 
It's also associated with the telomeres, that's the ends of the DNA, ends of the chromosomes. Part three, we don't know what it does. Nobody knows what it does. It may regulate these other enzymes called tankerases. It may not. <coughs> tankerase 1 here and tankerase 2 do very similar things. They're involved in regulating the telomeres, the, the end structures of the ends of the chromosomes. They're involved in the mitotic spindle, which is the structure in the cell as the cell grows and develops two sets of DNA, two sets of chromosomes. This is a spindle, the apparatus that just pulls them apart. As the cell divides, it needs one set of DNA at one end of the cell, one set of DNA at the other end of the cell, to separate into two cells. It's involved in signaling, and it's involved in glucose transport. Quite interesting enzymes, these tankerases. So different isoforms, different forms of polyADP ribose polymerase, with different structures and different functions. We worked on part one for a long time with Bill Wish. This was their first inhibitor. And with him, we developed an, a pharmacophore. An idea, this a pharmacophore is the idea of what bit of the molecule actually does the inhibiting. What do we want in, a, in an inhibitor? So building out from here, we developed this pharmacophore that the amide should have a particular shape. We need a benzene ring here. We can't have anything up here. But we do need big things down here. <coughs> and are here, this group, should not be an electron withdrawing group. We developed that. Other groups were working in parallel, particularly in, at Newcastle. And we explored this ring system, this isoquinolinone ring system, changed all these groups around here. The usual sort of structure activity relationship. We changed this ring into a ring with a sulfur in it. And we made a different type of ring with a hydrogen bond across here. We made a lot of quite active compounds in this series. And this is just a crystal structure of this compound where I was going to show, demonstrate the hydrogen bond if I had enough time, which I don't. But one of the compounds which dropped out of this work, dropped out, that's the wrong expression, which arose, let's go in the opposite direction, which arose from this study was this one, which we call 5-AIQ. And that kept us in research collaboration for years. It's a really interesting molecule. It's not ours originally. It was patented by Warner Lambert amongst a whole series of compounds. But they went towards clinical trial with the wrong member of the series. This one is a lot better. But we couldn't develop it ourselves because of their, their patent tie-up. So what about 5-AIQ? It's really active. It's not very active against the enzyme. It works. For those who are interested, I see 50 about 300 nanomolar. But it's amazing in a number of biological applications in which part one is involved. Hemorrhagic shock. This is blood loss. If, blood is lo if a patient loses blood in a road accident or something like that and then gets blood, oxygenated blood transfused in, that causes damage to all sorts of tissues. And 5-AIQ protects against that damage. There's a bar graph up here. These are animals, rats, which have not been had their blood removed or part of the blood removed. Here's the hemorrhagic shock animals, where 
Part of the blood volume is removed and replaced later. And here are the treated animals. So this is a marker of damage to liver. Liver is quite damaged by the hemorrhagic shock. 5-AIQ protects against this damage, even at 30 micrograms per kilogram. It's amazingly potent in this activity. And it has a lot of other activities in what's called ischemia reperfusion injury, when blood supply to an organ is cut off and then reopened, when oxygen comes rushing in and causes damage to that, to that organ. So in kidney um, and in heart and through a lot of collaborations, we've shown it in a lot of other ischemia reperfusion injuries as well. 5-AQ is good stuff. It also works in models of inflammation, probably through inhibiting gene expression. And it works in models of metastasis, works in models of metastasis. That is spread of cancer. Why should it work in models of metastasis? It does, though. And a collaborator in China provided me with these photographs of mouse liver. Um, just to demonstrate it, these are control livers which have, from mice which have either received the drug or not received the drug. You can see they're quite healthy, kind of regular colour. And these are livers from tumour-bearing mice. The tumour is not in the liver. The tumour is actually in the spleen in these mice. And in mice which have not received drug, a lot of new tumours, metastases, the white spots start developing in the liver. So it moves from the spleen into the liver. This is what happens a lot in human cancer. Cancers spread. This drug essentially stops that spread of the cancer. Yeah, this is the paper it was published in. Our collaborator, Yelan Wai, was under pressure at the time to publish in a national journal so this really, really, really striking result was published in the Journal of the Third Military Medical University. <laughs> Impact factor, um, yeah. <laughs> That's why the, 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 this work never, never really got anywhere. We got to 2008, and the last picture of an in, individually inspiring person. I got my personal chair, as the dean mentioned, Leslie Oldfield, that's my father-in-law, that's this guy, not this one. Um, Leslie Oldfield, my father-in-law, now passed away, said that he wanted to live long enough to see me get my chair and see his grandson. He made one, but not the other. But he inspired me with that statement. Okay, very recent work in the tanker races. PARPs 5A and 5B, isoforms 5A and 5B. Um, Amit Nathubai here and some other people in the room have been working in this area. Here we had a bit of an advantage when we started in the project to design inhibitors. Here's 5AIQ. 5AIQ does inhibit the tankerases. This is tankerase 2. And we have a crystal structure here. We have a structure of the whole enzyme. Here we have the structure of the enzyme. So we're not working blind. We know the structure of the enzyme. So we're designing drugs which will bind 
neatly into the active site of the enzyme, block it up. Here's the crystal structure, here's 5AIQ, there it is in the binding site. So if we just change the colours a bit, it's there. So we can see the shape of the molecule. You can see the 5AIQ in there. And all these other coloured blobs are the surface of the protein. We can see how it binds. We expand it a bit. We're looking in through a tunnel, through a, through a hole in the protein. We're actually looking in, in this sort of direction. But more importantly, if we look in a slightly different direction, we look in this direction, in the molecule, we can see it there. We can see the view of the molecule. We see in here there's quite a big cavity. Quite a big cavity. It's a non-polar hydrophobic cavity. And here's a cartoon of the shape of the molecule. Here's our 5AIQ. And there's a big hydrophobic cavity, big hole. And then there's a tunnel that we're looking through, through to the exterior. So we're going to design drugs which fit into this cavity and possibly fit into this tunnel. And the way we did that was, again, to look at the structure, see how the binding motif works, how these drugs will bind, the 5AQ binds onto the enzyme. The main anchoring point is this same pattern of hydrogen bonds. But now we decided to put a benzene ring into the, it's about the right size to fit in this big hole, this hydrophobic hole. And we were changing the groups around here, changing the group here. This was NH2 in the 5AIQ. And these were all the, the questions we asked. Confirmation rigidity, what could we do in this region of space? Did X here have to be a carbon, like it was in 5AIQ, or could it be a nitrogen? What type of group could we have here? What, what did this ring over here have to be? Did it have to be aromatic and therefore flat, or could it be bent? 160-something compounds later, in structure-activity relationship, we established, a, we identified a lot of very, very potent compounds. And moreover, we identified a lot of very selective compounds. These compounds inhibit the tankerases and not other members of the PARP family. Interesting chemistry begets interesting biology. Thank you, Malcolm. Here's some interesting chemistry. I can see a few members of the chemistry department here. This is for your benefit. We do do good chemistry over here in, in pharmacy pharmacology. Some quite neat approaches to building up these heterocycles and some quite weird reactions down here. That's the chemistry. That's How many chemists in the room? Not a lot. A few. Let's pass over there. Interesting chemistry begets interesting biology. That was interesting chemistry. There's some really hot biology here. Here's one example. Here's the amino group here. So we've just got this extra bit stuck on it in this region, going into the hydrophobic pocket. We've got good activity. We're looking for low numbers here. So good activity against tankerase 2, 34 nanomolar IC50. It's not wonderfully selective when we compare it. It also inhibits PARP1 quite well. But when we put a methyl group in this position, a non-polar group rather than a polar group, the selective potency increases and the selectivity gets fantastic. Selectivity gets absolutely fantastic. These are some of the most selective compounds around between isoforms.
Um, we can change the groups around here, put different, group, put different groups in different regions of space. We can have, this doesn't have to be a benzene ring, it can be this ring which is not planar. This is Amit's, one of Amit's best compounds so far from, his, from the first part of the project. Lots of selectivity and it works in cells as well. It gets into cells. Interestingly, if we extend in this direction even more, and put this big group on here, we keep selectivity and we keep activity. IMPDH is another NAD requiring enzyme. We keep enormous selectivity. Why is that? I just thought, we thought this was just going to be too big to go in this hydrophobic pocket. So we published the work and then studied exactly why we could get away with this extra tail down here, this extra bit. This shouldn't, this shouldn't fit in that pocket, it should be too big. So in collaboration with Larry Lechtier at Olo, uh, who's been working with us on this project for quite a while now, we showed that not only does the compound occupy the hydrophobic pocket in there, the hydrophobic cavity, but it pokes out the other end. And we've picked up a new binding site on the outside surface of the enzyme, increasing potency, increasing selectivity. So we've now filled up this space, and we've got compounds which come out through the tunnel to find a new binding site over here. The last bit of scientific data is this. Compounds we can't talk about, can't disclose the structure, but Amit has now got down to 100 picomolar in binding affinity. And selectivity is 50,000 fold, something like that? 70,000 fold. So we're kind of pleased with that. But unfortunately, I can't disclose the structures. Go back to Jennifer Aniston, but paraphrase slightly. That was the science bit. I want to thank some people who, I, who paid for it, paid for all this work. All these funders have paid for this work. Um, I would like to thank... all these funders, and we do some fundraising for these funders. I didn't know the sound was going to be on. Um, Amit and I went um, abseiling earlier this year to raise some money for worldwide cancer research. And we managed to invite the grants manager for worldwide cancer research to come down and abseil as well. What she didn't disclose to us and she didn't sign on the disclaimer form, but she'd actually broken her pelvis a couple of months before. <laughs> so, Debbie, thank you very much for turning up and abseiling. I'd like to thank the funders. I'd like to thank my collaborators. In the introduction, it was mentioned I collaborate with people all over the place. If you're a collaborator and I've left you off, sorry, but I try to get in as many as possible. We collaborate with people all over the place. I'd like to thank these people who inspire me, the postdoctoral workers. Keep me going. Um, list of postdoctoral workers here. We don't go in the lab all the time. This is Amit. An old photo, yes. I'd like, particularly like to thank Amit, my current post senior postdoctoral person. Pauline, who worked with me for quite a long time. 
and Victoria, who worked in my lab about seven or eight years ago. 2006, wasn't it? 2006 it was, uh, because that's when she organised a major conference with us. And we can see that these postdoctoral workers have come from various parts of the world. An international approach is what we like in the lab. And the final slide of thanks, no, the second to final slide of thanks, is to recognise these people, two, post, two um, postgraduate students, PhD students from Pakistan, some visiting undergraduate students um, who have come in er mainly in earlier years to work in my lab for longer or shorter periods. This is now, with current university policy, rather more difficult. Uh, a group of students from Shandong University have worked in my lab for a while, and some school students. Hattie Sharp spent six weeks in my lab and discovered a new reaction when she was just under 17 years old and got it published in Organic and Biomolecular Chemistry. But the best inspiration comes from the postgrad students, from, came from different parts of the world, different stages of their careers now. Saul Tendler is now Pro Vice Chancellor at Nottingham. Has he? Has he moved on? Gosh. Um, they've gone off, in, gone off in various directions. Not all, not all of them studying medicinal chemistry. But I'd like to thank them all for their contributions to the research. And there's one particular inspiration I'd like to thank. It's my wife, Sue Oldfield, in the front row. Um, let's, emeritus molecular biologist and... <laughs> and um, currently an expert in horticultural science. <laughs> and here are some pictures of the postgrads. A picture of Peter Sunderland asleep. And that's Mike Kenny, my, the latest postgrad at the back. And I'd like to thank you all for your attention. <laughs>